Last year I was teaching a meta retreat in Missouri. And this retreat had an interesting aspect to it. That it was held only a few days after the shootings and deaths of students at Columbine High School in Colorado. I know this event had a strong impact on me and I perceived it to have a strong impact on the retreat. It was one of the few meta retreats or maybe the only meta retreat that I've taught where the question never even arose as to why we do meta practice. It seemed like when there was such an obvious statement of what happens when we don't address the mind states of separation and isolation, it becomes very evident why it is that we're doing this practice. And we start to see that it's something that is totally necessary. It's a great significance, not just to ourselves, but to the whole of humanity. Tonight I would like to speak about an integral part of our hearts moving back into wholeness. And this is the quality of forgiveness. Being able to let go of the pain of the past, events where we've been hurt, the sadness, the wounding that has occurred, being able to let go of that so that we can move freely into the present, cleanly and clearly. And I'm sure after a day of working with the difficult person that many of us realize that this is not always so easy. In my own investigations of forgiveness, I came across a couple of descriptions that to me speak of the depth of the experience. The first one describes forgiveness as the most tender part of love. I find that this description helps me when faced with the pain of forgiving to remember to turn to it with the greatest of tenderness and care. We're working where we are most vulnerable. It's that moment of taking the thorn out of the heart, the thorn that pierces and lacerates, and yet its removal can only be done with the utmost care. The other description I came across is the fragrance that the violet, that the violet sheds on the heel that has crushed it the fragrance that the violet sheds on the heel that has crushed it. This one really got me. It just spoke to me of how in the midst of pain there's the delicacy of the perfume of love. The way that it simply permeates through its exquisite fragrance. Forgiveness helps us to shed our brutality and touch these places of tenderness. Without forgiveness, we will only continue to carry around the wounds of the past, having places in our hearts that we just can't open. Places where we fear, feel fear, disappointment, guilt, and shame or strike out once again in anger and hatred. Instead, if we can open to and forgive others and ourselves of past injustices, it brings us back into connection. It releases the energy that has been tied up 
and allows us to meet life anew. It opens the doorway of this moment to its full potential. In doing so, we can touch the truth of the interdependence of all beings on an experiential level. I'd like to read a passage by Desmond Tutu, who is the chairman of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Board. As you can imagine, that board would be faced with the greatest challenges in the area of forgiveness. It's called A Chance to Begin Again. Forgiveness is taking seriously the awfulness of what has happened when you are treated unfairly. It is opening the door for the other person to have a chance to begin again. Without forgiveness, resentment builds in us, a resentment which turns into hostility and anger. Hatred eats away at our well-being. In Africa, we have a word, Ubuntu, which is difficult to render in Western languages. It speaks out about the essence of being human, that my humanity is caught up in your humanity, because we say a person is a person through other persons. In our African understanding, we get great store by communal peace and harmony. Anything that subverts this harmony is injurious, not just to the community, but to all of us. And therefore, forgiveness is an absolute necessity for continued human existence. And I'm sure we all, in the depths of our heart, know this to be true. Forgiveness becomes a cornerstone in letting go of the injustices of the past, in the service of the welfare of all beings. I know for myself, however strong I may think that I am dedicated or wanting to forgive, that the truth of living it can be the most heart-wrenching, demanding, challenging, courageous, and transformative thing we've ever done. In fact, for many of us, it at times so often appears as impossible. We really meet that no inside ourselves. We hear the cries of injustice. So as I go through my talk tonight, I'd like for you to remember the words of Desmond Tutu when he says, Forgiveness is taking seriously the awfulness that has happened when you are treated unfairly. Forgiveness takes on a tainted view when we think that it is the process of covering over injustices. It takes us into the fear of repeated violence or abuse. The real process of forgiveness does not deny the injustice, but instead allows us to feel the pain and move on with a deeper sense of commitment to living in the way of non-harming. It strengthens our commitment to awaking, to liberating the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion in our own minds, and making our lives the greatest offering we can give. Earlier in my life, I never believed that I could make a difference in the world, a world so filled with anger, hatred, and injustice. And my teenage years were filled with the hostility towards what seemed like such an unfair world. And I felt totally powerless within that. There just seemed no way that I could make a difference, no matter what I did with my life. And I know now why I didn't see of the possibility was, was because my response was also so filled with the anger and the rage to which I was reacting to. I was so caught 
in my own reaction that the door of possibility was closed. I was lost in the world of brutality, and I perceived that brutality to be outside of me. It was many years later, when I was sitting silently on my cushion, that there came a torrent of rage, a torrent of anger. I was doing intensive practice at the time, and this, these states kept arising for a very long time. Up until that time, I had believed myself to be a reasonably kind person. But as the rage released itself in my mind, I realized that I too carried these seeds of injustice that I had been reacting to for so many years. Within my own mind were the poisons that fueled wars, crime, and violence. It was very shocking to me to discover this. And it served as a real turning point in my own life. But this was only possible when I stopped blaming those around me, when I just started looking honestly into my own mind. It was very, very humbling. It demanded of me that I feel the pain of these entanglements with these states of mind, feeling the pain of carrying bitterness in my heart. No longer could I condemn those who had started wars, had committed crimes, violence, and created suffering, because here inside my own mind were these same states. What I found arising in my own mind was compassion. Compassion for myself because of the pain that I felt. Compassion for others because I had some idea of how deep their pain was. At another turning point in my life, I realized of the possibility of continuing to honor the truth of love in the face of anger. Now, although I'm only a beginner at this, I have seen in small ways how the heart that remains filled with love in the face of anger can have a very profound effect. It is far greater than any words spoken from the place of anger. But in order to do this, we have to stop the wars in our own minds. A number of years ago, during the Korean War, Paul Reps, who was a longtime Zen meditator and quite famous writer, was trying to go to Japan to study and practice in a Zen monastery in Kyoto. At this time, visas were not being issued to non-military Westerners. Nevertheless, Paul Reps was very determined, so he filed the, the papers that were necessary with the Asian Immigration Department. He was told it would be not possible for him to visit Japan, as he was not militarily allied. Sitting opposite the immigration officer, he turned his visa request over and on the back wrote, Making a cup of green tea, I stop the war. And he handed it back to the official across the desk. The immigration officer took a long look at the poem, read it silently to himself. Making a cup of green tea, I stop the war. Turning the paper over, he initialed approval for reps to enter the country. Looking up, he said, we need more people like you in our country right now. We need more people like this in the world right now, urgently. We need to stop this cycle of violence and struggle. Yet the place to begin it is right inside our own minds and hearts. So long as we are harboring hatred, the wars will continue. 
so long as we can't forgive others, separation and alienation will continue. There was a very famous teaching given by the Buddha about anger. He said, anger will never cease through anger. Anger can only cease through love. This is an eternal law. The investigation of this law becomes the basis and the need for us to forgive. The greater we understand this law, the more we see how essential forgiveness is. Without it, we will only remain in the place of separation. And I'm sure by this point in the retreat, we have some idea, some understanding of just how painful it is to be in the place of separation. We become much more aware of the feelings, the thoughts, the emotions that surround this painful state. We also start to see how draining it becomes each time that we get pulled into these stories of our separation how we keep ending up in the same place over and over again. This only amplifies the feeling of separation. Today we started working with the difficult person. But what some of you have expressed in interviews is that really, even when we worked with our dearest friends, we started to see some of the grudges that we were harboring. We started to touch these places in our hearts. And it wasn't until I began my own practice that I really understood how painful it was to throw somebody out of my heart. To see that it was really me who was suffering in the closing off of my heart. And because of the closing off of my heart, I couldn't even begin to see the pain of the other person. And this left the trenches between us even deeper. Joseph mentioned last night how there's a purifying factor in doing these practices. How many times it will release memories from the past. Old wounds will come up. In doing so, this is the place where we can begin to forgive, letting go and facing freshly. In order to do this, we have to have the courage to forgive. So our practice becomes one of forgiveness, forgiveness that unburdens us from the past, touching in ourselves these painful places, as well as becoming aware of the pain of others, releasing, letting go. And what we're really relinquishing is the suffering. When we are working with people that have hurt or harmed us, it is important to remember that by opening our hearts and letting go of the past, it doesn't mean that we condone their actions. More to the point is that we are reclaiming our power to keep our hearts open. If we don't, we have succumbed to the great burning fire of anger and rage and the loss of our own dignity. The basis of our forgiving is when we can once again see the other person as a fellow human being, being in touch with the humanness that we share, the same intrinsic wish for happiness, that these people, too, are in search of happiness, that they, too, are subject to the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion that cover over this desire for happiness. 
So often when we're harming others, it's because we are in such a place of pain and cannot see clearly. It's very likely that when the other person committed harmful actions, that they were in this same place of pain. It's when we are disconnected that we do such things. So remembering in ourselves how painful the place of separation is. This can help us to have a greater understanding of the other person. And knowing how great their pain is, this is the place that loving kindness is needed. When anger is present, love is needed. People acting in harmful ways do so out of ignorance. It's quite likely that they're only acting in ways that they themselves have been treated. It comes out of the conditions of our lives. The possibility of breaking the chain is through love and awareness. This is from a Japanese nun named Kojiju who lived in the 12th century. Merely to know the flawless moon dwells pure in the human heart is to find the darkness of the night vanished under clearing skies. And we all have this flawless moon dwelling pure in our hearts. The other day I was reading a very touching story about the power of empathy in the act of forgiveness. And this story is about a man named Everett Worthington who had co-written a book about forgiveness called To Forgive is Human, How to Put Your Past in the Past. Only days after he finished writing the book, Everett's mother was beaten to death by burglars in her home. Shortly after, as rage bubbled up in Everett, he found himself thinking, I'd like to have that murderer alone in a room with just a baseball bat. I'd beat his brains out. Then the writing of his own book challenged him. Did he really believe what he had written about forgiveness? Could he empathize with the person who had murdered his mother. This is in his own words, what he went through. That night, I tried to picture the crime scene. I imagined how a pair of youths might feel as they stood in the dark street preparing to rob the house. Perhaps they had been caught at robbery previously. They would have been keyed up. The house was dark. No car in the driveway. No one's home, they must have thought. Perhaps one said, they're at a New Year's Eve party. They couldn't know that Mama didn't drive. A quick rap of the crowbar, and they were in, hastily emptying drawers, dumping the contents on the floor. I imagined their shock when her voice came from behind. What are you doing in here? Oh, no. One must have thought, I've been seen. I'll go to jail. She's ruining my life. He lashed out with his crowbar, slamming my mother three times. Panicked, the youth went crazy, trashing the house, both for having their plans ruined and for the shame of having murdered. I felt I understood better what had happened. Whosoever murdered my mother did a terrible thing. Nothing will change that. Through empathy, however, I saw that he had lashed out in fear, panic, guilt, and anger. I thought of how I had talked about beating him to death with a baseball bat. I was willing to do what he did, only with more forethought, more naked malice than he. Whose heart is darker, I almost spoke aloud, when I saw that evil that I was capable of plotting. I was humbled. I saw my own guilt over plotting revenge. 
As a Christian, I believed that even as I confessed my evil intent, I would receive divine forgiveness for it. I felt forgiveness flood me. I knew that the youth, too, needed forgiveness. How could I withhold what the youth needed? So I forgave him, and I have since felt peace. People sometimes find it hard to believe that I could forgive so quickly. In fact, though I wish such rapid forgiveness were always available, available, forgiveness more often takes time. Time to feel empathy with the person who harms us, and more time to get to the point where we're really ready to forgive. I only know that in the three years since that night, I haven't felt the hostility or desire for revenge that I had at times before felt for people who had inflicted lesser hurts on me. Forgiveness did not shorten my grief, for over a year afterwards I periodically would become, be overcome with sorrow. The blessing was that I did not also have to deal with my own hatred and bitterness. This is a powerful story about the power of empathy. To be able to step in the shoes of the other, to feel their pain, to feel the mind states that might be present. And it takes a lot of courage to do this, to touch such deep places of despair. But walking in their shoes we recognize that they too have the need to be loved. Only recently a friend was telling me how she had this experience where she tasted of what it was like to be a have-not. What she wanted was out of her reach, and yet others were able to get what it was that she wanted. And it brought up a lot of feelings of powerlessness, futility, and anger. This person also works on a daily basis with people whom are underprivileged in this society. But she said just how much it helped her to see what those people were facing. How that they only, the only possibility they saw for getting what they thought would bring them happiness was to turn to ways of crime and violence. And many of these people don't even know ways to be free or to begin to touch into their suffering. What we may have noticed in our practice is there, there are times when we're working with these people who are difficult where we hear the voice of our own self-righteousness arising. In staying with it, we see how the anger only escalates if we're believing these self-righteous views. And yet, this is so often what we cling to. And this is suffering. Self-righteous views have been the source of many, many violations of human kindness over the history of mankind. And incredible numbers of wars have been fought on the basis of religious faith. Religions that probably have as their basis peace and happiness. But somehow it gets transported into peace and happiness my way, the only way, becoming intolerant of others. we see just how difficult it is for us to open to diversity, to be able to hold the differences we have. But when we pay attention, we see that these self-righteous views, which we so judge and condemn others by, are really darts in our own hearts. 
There was a young Jewish woman named Eddie Hillisum who lived in Holland during uh, the time of Nazi occupation. Despite the difficult circumstances that surrounded her, it became a time of quite immense spiritual growth. Amidst the horrors of injustice, she became an example of the strength and endurance of the capacity of the heart to love. She spent the last few months of her life in a transit camp named Westerbork, where she died in, before she died in Auschwitz. Surrounded by some of the worst atrocities in this world, she says in a letter written to her friend Maria, Many feel that their love of mankind languishes at Westerbork because it receives no nourishment, meaning that people here don't give you much occasion to love them. Someone said, The mass is a hideous monster. Individuals are pitiful. But I keep discovering that there is no casual connection between people's behavior and the love you feel for them. Love for one's fellow man is like an elemental glow that sustains you. The fellow man himself has hardly anything to do with it. Oh, Maria, it's a little bear of love here, and I feel myself so inexpressibly rich. I cannot explain it. Love for one's fellow man is like an elemental glow that sustains you. Love is vastly bigger than any individual. It is what sustains us. It is what nourishes us. Our difficult people, our enemies, these are the people that have so much to teach us. How many times have you noticed that the qualities that you dislike in another are the qualities that you have difficulty accepting in yourself? By having the opportunity to have them reflected back to us, it helps us to accept ourselves on deeper and deeper levels. Our enemies are able to show us things that our dearest friends can't, the places where we are stuck, we are holding on, we are in pain. And in the end, they show us that we too have the capacity to love. However noble forgiveness might be, it's often a difficult process. And it's one that becomes only more painful if it's based upon the shoulds. I should be able to forgive. I should be able to let go. I should be able to go beyond this. Then, if the truth of the situation is that we're really at our edge and cannot find the place of forgiveness in that moment, it only brings up more self-hatred and anger. So it needs to be approached with patience. Our capacity in that moment may be to just barely be touching the edges of what we find so painful. But there's no need to judge ourselves or punish ourselves anymore. Accepting that we are at the edge of what we find unacceptable. When we are at the edge, this is a real place of practice, and we need to let the process unfold in its own time. As we can, relinquishing the mind states of guilt, resentment, blame, that keep us from liberation. Rather than disempowering us, forgiveness takes us to the place of empowering. It allows us to hear with a clear and open mind. It doesn't mean that we continue to accept 
abusive behavior, but that we aren't so caught up in reaction and can then respond from the place of wisdom and compassion. One of my greatest discoveries was learning that I could say no with an open heart. Before that, for the longest time in my life, when I would realize I needed to say no, the aversion would immediately come up. And therefore, my response to people was full of reaction. But then I discovered that I could really be holding a person in my heart as I said no to them. And in doing it in that way, it made it much easier for the other person to hear. It wasn't so loaded with my own reactions. One of the hardest people on my own journey to forgive has been myself. It's often happened that when I've been in conflict with other people, I forgive them long before I forgive myself. From hearing other people talk, I don't think that this is unique to me. I think that this is something that a lot of us feel. Unable to forgive ourselves, we sit in a cesspool of shame and guilt, seeing it repeatedly arise. And this, too, becomes a very humbling experience. Simply bowing to it, feeling it, feeling what's there, touching the pain. If we can only just touch it, even lightly, we stop feeding the story of it. We stop putting other layers over our hearts. We can bear witness to this pain. Sometimes we get the idea that when we are perfect, then we can love ourselves. And I had a great lesson from a Zen master on perfection now. This was with the Zen master I spoke about in my last talk, Hogan Daido Yamahata. When I first sat with him, he introduced me to the practice of Zen koans, and he described a koan as being the ultimate question, which in itself is an answer, by which one can cut off one's own karmic ego head and be born anew. (laughs) So the first day he gave a koan, I was very excited. I sat, was sitting with my koan, and then bingo, this answer came to me. Very excitedly, I ran off to his room to tell him of my answer. I gave him my answer, and then I noticed this really puzzled expression come come over his face. And then he asked me what the koan was. So I repeated it back to him, and he says, I never gave that koan. (laughs) And I felt really embarrassed. (laughs) And I sheepishly left the room and went back to my cushion. So the next day he comes in, and he gives another one. And in hearing it, it was so profound. I mean, it just moved me to hear the question. And I sat there with it. And then after some time, I noticed that I wasn't with the koan at all. And not only was I not with it, I couldn't remember what the koan was. So I sat there for a bit and thought, well, what do I do? And then the little bell rings that says, you can go and have an interview. So I decided, okay, I'll go and talk to him again. And I go in and sit down and explain to him what has happened. And he looked at me, and he rolls his eyeballs (laughs) and says, just go and sit perfectly. And, you know, I let this sink in. I thought, oh, okay. And then it kind of puzzled me. And I I said to him, you know, you've just given me a future. And he gets really puzzled. And he says, how did I do that? And I said, well, you know, if I'm going to become perfect, it, it's going to take some time. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, there was this, just these two brown, piercing eyes 
laser beaming into me. And he says, perfection now. <laughs> and I bowed and left the room. <laughs> he had another wonderful way of describing this perfection. We are born anew only when we accept that this actual world, which is so miserable, imperfect, and rotten, as the most perfect, irreplaceable, and infinite one. So it is for both ourselves and others that we do not need to be perfect in order to love. With all of our great imperfections, we can open up and reclaim our heritage, accepting these conditions as perfection now. As we let go of the past, let go of forever beating ourselves or others up, let go of our imperfections, letting go of our self-righteous views, it becomes a true lightening of the heart. The difficulties we face in the practice of forgiveness, the states of fear, anger, guilt, and shame naturally give way to the joy and well-being that comes from living with an open-hearted presence. However insurmountable the difficulties may seem that we're facing, we need to stay persistent in the uncoverings of the natural loving heart. We need to remain patient with the process, learning to be patient with the unfolding of our own path and learning to accept ourselves just as we are with all these seemingly imperfections. Patience knows that until we are fully liberated, there will be times when we can't see to the, the truth of things. Bowing to this, not using it as a reason to go into further self-hatred or the fueling of resentment, being patient with the process of others. We do this because it is what honors truth. It is an expression of truth. As we heard from Etty Hillisum, we can come in contact with the immense capacity of the heart to love. In closing, I'd like to tell a Jataka tale. The, the Jataka tales are said to be stories of the Buddha before he became a Buddha, when he was perfecting the qualities of wisdom, compassion, equanimity. He was said to have, have lived in many different forms. And the story I'd like to tell tonight I want to tell not because it points to forgiveness, but because it points to the courage and the patience that is needed in the face of what seems insurmountable difficulties of which we often feel when we're working with forgiveness. So this is a story of the brave little parrot. Once long ago, the Buddha was born as a little parrot. One day, a storm fell upon his forest home. Lightning flashed, thunder crashed, and a dead tree stuck by lightning burst into flames. Sparks leapt on the wind, and soon the forest was ablaze. Terrified animals ran wildly in every direction, seeking safety from the flames and the smoke. Fire! Fire! cried the little parrot. To the river! Flapping his wings, he flung himself out in the fury of the storm, and rising higher, flew towards the safety of the river. But as he flew, he could see that many animals were trapped. 
surrounded by the flames below, with no chance of escape. Suddenly, a desperate idea, a way to save them, came to him. He darted to the river, dipped himself in the water, and flew back over the now raging fire. The heat rising up from the burning forest was like the heat of an oven. The thick smoke made breathing almost unbearable. A wall of flames shot up on one side and then the other. Crackling flames leapt before him, twisting and turning through the mad maze of fire. The little parrot flew bravely on. At last, when he was over the center of the forest, he shook his wings and released the few drops of water which still clung to his feathers. The tiny drops tumbled down like jewels into the heart of the blaze and vanished with a hiss. Then the little parrot once more flew back through the flames and the smoke to the river, dipped himself in the cool water, and flew back again over the burning forest. Back and forth he flew time and time again. His feathers were charred, his feet were scorched, his lungs ached, his eyes stung by smoke, turned red as coals, his mind spun dizzily as the spinning sparks, but still the little parrot flew on. At this time some of the devas, the gods of the happy realm, were floating overhead in the cloud palaces of ivory and gold. They happened to look down, and they saw the little parrot flying among the flames. They pointed at him with perfect hands. Between mouthfuls of honey foods, honeyed foods, they exclaimed, Look at that foolish bird. He's trying to put out a raging forest fire with a few sprinkles of water. How absurd! And they laughed. But one of those gods, strangely moved, changed himself into a golden eagle and flew down, down towards the little parrot's fiery path. The little parrot was just nearing the flames again when the great eagle with eyes like molten gold appeared at his side. Go back, little bird, said the eagle in a solemn and majestic voice. Your task is hopeless. A few drops of water can't put out a forest fire. Cease now and save yourself before it is too late. But the little parrot only continued to fly on through the smoke and the flames. He could hear the great eagle flying above him as the heat grew fiercer, calling out, Stop, foolish little parrot. Save yourself, save yourself. I don't need a great shining eagle, coughed the little parrot, to give me advice like that. My own mother, the dear bird, might have told me such things long ago. Advice. <coughs> I don't need advice. I just <coughs> need someone to help. And the god, who was that great eagle, seeing the little parrot flying through the flames, thought suddenly of his own privileged kind. He could see them up highly above. There they were, the carefree gods, laughing and talking while well, many animals cried out in pain and fear from the flames below, and he grew very ashamed. Then one single desire was kindled in his heart. God, though he was, he just wanted to be like that brave little parrot, and to help. I will help, he exclaimed, and he flushed with these new feelings. He began to weep, stream after stream of sparking... Sparkling tears poured down from his eyes. Wave upon wave, they washed down like the cooling rain upon the fire, upon the forest, upon the animals, and upon the little parrot himself. The flames died down, and the smoke began to clear. The little parrot, washed and bright, rocketed about the sky, laughing for joy. Now that's more like it, he exclaimed. The eagle's tears dripped from burned branches. Smoke rose up from the scorched earth. Miraculously, where those tears glistened, new life pushed forth. Fresh shoots 
stems, and leaves, green grass pushed up among the silk-glowing cinders. Where the teardrops sparkled on the parrot's wings, new feathers now grew, red feathers, green feathers, yellow feathers, such bright colors, such a handsome bird. All the animals looked at one another in amazement. They were whole and well. Not one had been harmed. Up above, in the clear blue sky, they could see their brave friend, the little parrot, looping and soaring in delight. When all hope was gone, somehow he had saved them. Hooray! Hooray! they cried for the brave little parrot and for this miraculous rain. So let's sit for a moment. From the Buddha, if it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. May all beings have the courage of the parrot as we venture on this path of awakening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.